Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, who discusses Donald Trump's historic New York City indictment, his verbal attacks on the prosecutor and judge, and the threat of violence from his supporters. Josh Rudner, a lecturer at Georgetown University's Justice and Peace Studies program, who examines Israel's massive protests against Prime Minister Netanyahu's attack on democracy, while ignoring rising violence targeting Palestinians. And Reverend Lennox Yearwood, President and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, who addresses the role of big banks in the global climate crisis at the March 21st Stop Dirty Banks protest rally in Washington, D.C. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In recent months, Germany's conservative Christian Democratic Union Party has adopted a hardline anti-immigrant platform under its new right-wing leader, Friedrich Merz, who took over after the formerly centrist CDU party lost the last election to the Social Democrats under the leadership of Olaf Scholz. The CDU surprised many political observers by taking first place in Berlin's city-state election that had been dominated by a coalition of the Social Democrats and the Green Party. The CDU's Berlin election campaign exploited long-held prejudices against immigrants and perceived out-of-control criminality among migrants from Turkey and the Middle East. Having finished first among a smattering of parties with 28.2% of the vote, the CDU is now negotiating with the Social Democrats to lead a two-party governing coalition in Berlin. According to Foreign Policy magazine, the CDU campaign prevailed in Berlin because of low voter turnout, a growing housing crisis, poor public services, and a fragmented left-wing coalition. Although the CDU has topped most national polls since last February and currently leads the SPD by around 9%, just how far right the CDU can fan the flames of a culture war in Germany before it alienates its centrist vote remains to be seen. In late February, insurgent candidate Sean Fain narrowly won the 400,000-member United Auto Workers election for president, the first direct election of a UAW president in the union's 88-year history. Fain beat the incumbent, Ray Curry, by 500 votes, the first time a reformer has prevailed over the UAW's dominant administrative caucus, which has run the union since the 1940s. In recent years, the UAW was shaken by a massive corruption scandal that included kickback schemes and ultimately resulted in the conviction of two former UAW presidents. Fain, an electrician from Indiana, promises to take a hard line in upcoming negotiations with the big three automakers. He pledges to eliminate the two-tier wage system, win protections against future plant closures, and ensure that new plants will be built in the U.S. rather than abroad. 
The New York Times reports that after winning the election, Fain declared, We put the companies on notice. The fighting UAW is back. These companies have enjoyed record profits for a decade, and our workers are still regressing and struggling to get by. The New York Police Department has settled a civil liberties case for violating the rights of protesters during major demonstrations in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. During a street protest in June 2020, NYPD officers illegally kettled and then violently arrested 300 Black Lives Matter activists in the Bronx. In an out-of-court settlement, the NYPD agreed to pay each protester $21,500 for a total payout costing taxpayers up to $6 million. As ProPublica observed, the case was reminiscent of an earlier civil rights lawsuit against the NYPD for its mass arrests of protesters during the 2004 Republican National Convention in New York City. At that time, police arrested and held 1,800 protesters for over 24 hours. Ten years later, the New York Civil Liberties Union won an $18 million settlement against the NYPD. Now, leaders in the New York City Council are raising their voices to push for major changes in how the NYPD deals with public protests. And activists are blasting NYC's law department for aggressively defending police officers, including blocking disclosures of records in these cases. In 2022, the city paid out $121 million stemming from police misconduct cases and several big settlements and long-standing wrongful conviction lawsuits. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Former President Donald Trump surrendered to authorities in New York City on April 4th, where he pleaded not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records and conspiracy related to hush money payments made to two women before the 2016 presidential election. Although Trump made history as the first former U.S. president to be charged with a crime, other presidents, including Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and George W. Bush, were all implicated in serious crimes for which they were never held accountable. The twice-impeached former president has attacked Manhattan's first black district attorney, Alvin Bragg, calling him an animal and a degenerate psychopath who hates the USA, as well as disparaging presiding New York State Supreme Court Justice Juan Marchand, a Latino-American, and his daughter. Trump, who said any criminal charge against him, could lead to potential death and destruction, has incited racist death threats against D.A. Bragg and his family, and bomb threats called into a lower Manhattan court, hearing a separate case against Trump. Many Republican politicians have echoed Trump's attack on D.A. Bragg or remained silent. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and author, who discusses Trump's historic indictment the threat of violence from his cult supporters, and how an action by Attorney General Merrick Garland in the Department of Justice over the past two-plus years 
increases the danger of attacks from right-wing domestic terrorists who believe they can act with impunity. Trump is on his 50th year of being investigated by the government for crimes. Uh, You know, the first investigation was by the Department of the Treasury uh, in 1973 related to racially uh, discriminatory practices done by him and his father. And what Trump did then was hire mafia lawyer Roy Cohn as his advisor. And Cohn's tactics were the exact same ones uh, that he's being prosecuted for right now uh, by Alvin Bragg, you know, of, of bribes and threats and hush money and NDAs and so on. And so he has been carrying out uh, these practices through mafia lawyers slash fixers uh, for half a century. And it's only now that he's being held accountable uh, through indictment in any way. And the thing is, everyone knew this about him in 2016. There are people who pretended that they didn't know. There are people who pretended they couldn't find this out by simply reading any, you know, New York-based tabloid from about 1985 through about 1992. You know, this information is all in the public domain. Sarah, he's calling for death and destruction as he calls his supporters to protest what he calls a politically motivated charge. He calls D.A. Alvin Bragg an animal, condemns the Latino-American judge in the case, and invokes George Soros as a master puppeteer of these charges as a stand-in for the obviously anti-Semitic trope that he and his supporters regularly raise. What do you think about these threats and how serious we as a nation should take them? You should take them very seriously. And again, it's the same things he did his whole life and in the 2016 campaign. I remember him attacking a, you know, a judge of Mexican heritage back then, saying that he couldn't possibly be an impartial judge. We've seen his incredible ability to amass a large group of people to commit an act of violence. And because he was not held accountable for that, uh, for the 2021 attack on the Capitol, that group of people has grown because in the beginning, you know, it was widely condemned. You know, most Americans thought the attack was deplorable and they thought that Joe Biden was the rightfully elected president because there wasn't any action uh, from the DOJ holding the uh, organizers of that attack accountable. People like Roger Stone or Michael Flynn or, of course, obviously Trump himself. A lot of people began to question it. They thought, well, if it was truly illegal, people would be held accountable. Trump would be held accountable. Maybe Joe Biden really did steal the election. You know, that's the logic that they're working with. So, again, time is the enemy. You know, the inability or unwillingness of the DOJ to act quickly has really hurt our country. And, you know, similarly, uh, in the Manhattan DA's office, it wasn't Bragg, it was Cy Vance, uh, his predecessor, who let that statute of limitations run out and then, you know, left Bragg uh, with, you know, this obligation to prosecute. Yeah, I, I think we are headed for violence. I'm worried that the timing of this coincides with April 19th, uh, you know, which is the day of the Oklahoma City bombing, the day of the end of the Waco siege, uh, an important date for uh, militia groups and others who might be acting, you know, regardless whether this is going on. But it's more fuel for that fire. Sarah, from some analysis I've read recently, the extremists are obviously not organizing openly to protest Trump's indictment as they were before January 6th. I mean, that was quite out in the open, even though the FBI and the Capitol Police 
the law enforcement folks associated with the Trump administration, it seems, looked the other way. But there is evidence right now that these right-wing militia groups and other extremists are encouraging lone wolf suicide attacks as part of an, an accelerationist strategy to provoke widespread violence and chaos. I hope to God that doesn't happen. But this is the discussion that's apparently going on in parts of the dark web among these extremist groups. Yeah, that that kind of act is what I'm worried about more than something like a, you know, January 6th uh, continuation. I don't think there's going to be like a storming of the White House. It's exactly what you said. It's, you know, suicide bombings, mass shootings uh, done by, you know, one or two people as part of a network, as part of a strategy and as terrorism. You know, a Timothy McVeigh kind of scenario. And I think that, you know, folks forget how easy that kind of act is to accomplish. And unfortunately, I think people haven't been, I don't want to say people are desensitized to violence, but certainly when they hear that there's a mass shooting, they're not surprised anymore in America. Um, You know, we crossed that Rubicon, you know, a long time ago, we crossed it with Sandy Hook. And so I worry that, uh, you know, if there are mass acts of violence like that in the weeks to come, you know, some having to do with Trump, maybe some not, uh, that there will not be a vigorous, thoughtful response from officials, um, you know, who are, of course, wary of doing anything that seems like what they did to David Koresh's compound in 1993 of, you know, overreacting, of killing innocent people in the process of trying to hold, uh, you know, the terrorists accountable. I just haven't seen, you know, a vigorous attack on this or kind of pushback towards this from this DOJ. You know, this is a very sleepy, slow DOJ, and we have a lot of very fast-moving mafia and militia movements, and that's a very bad combination. That was Sarah Kenzior, co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and author of They Knew, How a Culture of Conspiracy Keeps America Complacent. Find more commentary on this first indictment of Donald Trump by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In an unprecedented mobilization of Israel's civil society, massive protests were organized over the past three months, opposing Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his extremist religious right-wing government's effort to eviscerate the nation's judicial branch. The overhaul seeks to empower Israel's legislature to override Supreme Court rulings and give politicians the exclusive power to appoint judges, removing critical checks and balances. Opponents charge that Netanyahu is advocating these changes to insulate himself from the outcome of a trial where he now stands accused of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. After a nationwide strike and elite Israeli Air Force fighter pilots declaring their support of the protests, Netanyahu announced he would delay the judicial legislation to allow time for negotiations, but protests continue. Meanwhile, Palestinians are suffering a dramatic surge in killings after Israel's military staged near-daily raids across the occupied West Bank, and the government announced a major increase in building Jewish settlements in the occupied territories. Your reporter spoke with Josh Rubner. Adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University's Justice and Peace Studies program, who examines Israeli civil society's historic protest against Netanyahu's attack on democracy, rising violence targeting Palestinians, and the Biden administration's response. 
So these protests in which we've seen hundreds of thousands of mostly Jewish Israeli citizens out on the street protesting Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's attempt to impose a judicial coup and uh, install himself as, as the supreme leader uh, in Israel in a, in a very unchecked way has been very, very dramatic evidence that when Jewish Israelis want to mobilize on the streets to protest, they can make their voices heard and they can be very effective in doing so. Temporarily, the Israeli prime minister has decided to postpone moving forward with these plans to really eviscerate the judiciary and prevent the uh, Supreme Court from being the final say in the country. And while Jewish Israelis are rightfully worried to be concerned about the evisceration of their political rights under this extremist Israeli government, it really doesn't speak at all to the fact that for 75 years, Israel has ruled over the Palestinian people in a separate and unequal way where Palestinians have either less or no political rights based on their political status. And that discussion of Israel's apartheid rule over the Palestinian people has sadly been lacking from most of these protests. The Israeli military has killed 94 Palestinians already this year, making it on pace to be a much, much deadlier year for Palestinians in the West Bank than was last year, which is the most deadly in, in almost 20 years. So we were seeing this dramatic escalation of military attacks by Israel on Palestinians who are struggling for their freedom under Israeli military rule. And at the same time, we're really seeing unprecedented expansion of Israel's settlements in the West Bank, which are, of course, illegal under international law and actually a war crime. About four to six weeks ago, I think it was, uh, Israel announced the expansion of 10,000 settlement units, which was the largest single expansion of settlements ever announced at one time over the past 55 years. This is an example of how dramatically escalating these efforts are by Israel to continue to colonize Palestinian lands while intensifying violence against Palestinians. Josh, I did want to ask you about the Biden administration and the response to all this. Secretary of State Blinken has made some noise, not much, about multiple crises that we've been talking about tonight. What has the Biden administration said so far, if anything? And what would you like them to say? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that the Biden administration has failed to reverse almost all of the Trump administration's incredibly radical policies. How many times can you say that you oppose Israel's expansion of settlements and not do anything about it and still consider yourself to be credible? The fact is that the United States has tremendous leverage over Israel, and we're not using it to exert any pressure at all to achieve what are supposed U.S. policy goals, like ending Israeli settlements, like ending Israel's home demolitions of Palestinian houses. So more and more senators and members of Congress are demanding, like Senator Chris Van Hollen on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that there be actual accountability imposed on Israel for violating U.S. laws when it comes to using weapons against Palestinian civilians, when it comes to continuing its colonization of Palestinian land. So what I'd like to see from the Biden administration is some actual steps toward holding Israel accountable 
at least conditioning, at the very least conditioning, weapons to Israel on the end to Israel's military occupation, the end to Israel's human rights abuses against the Palestinians. But none of these things are being considered seriously by the Biden administration. If they are, they're not being talked about publicly. That was Josh Rubner, adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University's Justice and Peace Studies program and author of Shattered Hopes, Obama's Failure to Broker Israeli-Palestinian Peace. Find more analysis and commentary on the crises in Israel-Palestine by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On March 21st, protests in more than 100 cities across the U.S. targeted the nation's four largest banks funding fossil fuel projects, Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, and Bank of America. These banks continue to finance fossil fuel projects, despite calls from the scientific community, cited in the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, that ending our addiction to fossil fuels is the best chance we have of keeping global warming below the level that could trigger irreversible climate catastrophe. The Stop Dirty Banks actions were organized by Third Act, a new organization engaging Americans over 60 to work on two issues, safeguarding democracy and confronting the climate crisis. The marquee event in Washington, D.C. included a 24-hour rocking chair rebellion vigil with elders in rocking chairs, in front of four banks, a rally featuring speakers, music, and a performance by an intergenerational theater troupe, and a raucous march past four bank branches, ending with a die-in and a brief blockade of Chase and Wells Fargo banks. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus, who participated in the Capitol action, recorded rally speaker Reverend Lennox Yearwood, president and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus a national organization that brings young people into political engagement through hip-hop music and culture. Here, Reverend Yearwood talks about the history of banks as facilitators of slavery before their current role as enablers of today's climate crisis. This is not a game because the same banks that funded the slave movement are the same banks that are funding the fossil fuel movement. And so you need to understand today, for a black person out here, you need to understand this is personal to us because these same banks from Bank of America and Chase and other banks, they have been in the industry of injustice for a very long time. And so when I stand here, I'm not only standing here to fight for existence, I'm also fighting for equality on the back shoulders of my ancestors who stood in this park 160 years ago. The banks back then would actually use slaves for collateral to use to create loans. So now we're fast forwarding 160 years later where these same banks are still investing in things that are killing us. And so these same banks 
are funding projects. And they understand that back then, yes, fund slavery, but now they're funding fossil fuel projects that are literally putting us on a suicidal march to ending of existence. Literally meaning their business plan means a death sentence for our communities. That is where they are. They are literally sitting in their boardrooms, understanding that when they're funding Willow, or when they're funding the pipeline products from Keystone to Mountain Valley to Atlantic Coast, when they're doing that, when they're putting their money to Conoco or to Chevron, I mean Chevron, I mean, and, and Shell and, and, and Exxon, they understand the science better than we do. They understand what's happening in our world and on our planet. But they are so hell-bent on greed and on destruction. They are willing to mortgage the lives of our children. But we stand up and we say no to that right now. You will not continue business as usual. We cannot allow for that to happen. I wish there was folks who understood that, that could run the slave trade, and they would have been like you in this park and say that we're going to speak out against these banks for investing in the slave trade. That didn't happen. But you here, you are the descendants of that generation to say we wasn't there, but we here now. And because we're here now, we can speak out against the injustice of the fossil fuel industry that's killing us in India, that's killing us on the continent, that's killing us in the Caribbean, that's killing us in San Francisco, in Sonoma County, wildfires, to where I'm from, and from Louisiana with the petrochemical industry, and, and so much pollution and toxins, that's to East Palestine with petrochemical facilities and trains that are being derailed with vital chloride. I can go on and on and on, but they're killing us! with their madness. And so we come here today to say enough is enough. But this is the difference, y'all. Let me say why this is different. Because we can put forth an emancipation proclamation. Abraham Lincoln can sign that. And he can have the courage to sign that. Understanding that even though we're in a civil war at that time, he can have the courage to sign that. So now, we got another president, and we need this president to be as courageous as that one was, to say that we are in a climate emergency, and that despite what's all going on, I need to be as courageous. Don't quote Abraham Lincoln Joe Biden. Be like Abraham Lincoln Joe Biden. That was Reverend Lennox Yearwood, president and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus speaking at the Stop Dirty Banks rally in Washington, D.C. on March 21st. Learn more about the Hip Hop Caucus and Third Act's climate campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, CKDU in Halifax, Nova Scotia, KYRS in Spokane, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.